Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hang up and listen, fans. People who are listening for the first time might hear a bad word or two. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 28, 2022. On this week's show, journalist Meg Swanick will join us to talk about the U.S. men's national team's big matchup against Iran and what it means on and off the field. Our Slate colleague and author of The Hot Seat, Ben mathis Lilly, will also be here to revel in Michigan's second straight win over Ohio State. And finally, we'll discuss The Washington Post's big feature on Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who has never hired a black head coach and who stood on the steps at North Little Rock High as black students tried to integrate his school 65 years ago. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. All episodes of our 1942 season are out now, including Joel's season finale, The Black Japanese Axis. Check it out. It's a great episode. Um, Hi, Joel. Great episode. Thanks. Uh, Real team effort there. Glad it's over. (laughs) Move forward. (laughs) Whatever the next... uh, the next project is, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun working with Josh and the one-year team. And yeah, I do think that story, nobody gets to see the rough draft or the raggedy draft, as I call them, but it took two short weeks and we, not not two short weeks, but it like we really hit hard the last two weeks to get that done. And uh, it, yeah, I strongly encourage you all to listen to it. It's really good. And with us from Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a great piece that just went up in Slate on Monday about the new Scrabble Dictionary. It's really a great piece, Stefan, and it's about how the Scrabble Dictionary is basically wholly responsible for like moving American lexicography forward at this stage of uh, human history. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's the the piece. I, I wanted to sort of get away from just like, oh, look at all these nice new words that are in the dictionary. You know, I hate all the new pieces about the Scrabble dictionary that are just about like, look at all these nice new words. Yeah, Such I mean, a cliche. It is a cliche. I mean, they is going to get played a lot. Vax, docs. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in there that's going to feel familiar and exciting. But there's an underlying story too about how the American dictionary business is kind of dying. Um, and Merriam-Webster, which publishes the Scrabble Dictionary, is kind of the last uh, old-line lexicography outfit standing. And the Scrabble Dictionary is playing an interesting role where it um, feels like, you know, we need more words, but there's really no places to get them from except for Merriam right now. And what they're going to do about that is kind of a, an interesting linguistic question to me. In our Slate Plus segment this week, we are going to continue our conversation with Meg Swanick. In our segment that you're about to hear, we're going to really focus on 
the U.S.-Iran matchup. And in our bonus segment, we're going to talk about the rest of the tournament, um, what the most exciting games have been. Meg's been there um, in Qatar in person, and we'll tell us about her experience. So um, you should check that out. Um, but to check it out, you need to be a Slate Plus member, and you get bonus segments, you get ad-free shows, and you get to support us, which we appreciate. Slate.com slash plus. Slate.com slash plus. The first week of the Men's World Cup Finals in Qatar has gone, just as everyone predicted. Saudi Arabia beat pre-tournament favorite Argentina, Japan beat four-time champion Germany, and the United States maintained its unblemished World Cup record against scary, scary England. Next up for the Americans, a win-or-go-home match against Iran on Tuesday, which, thanks to a well-intentioned but clumsy attempt by U.S. soccer to demonstrate solidarity with protesters in Iran, has gained political implications in addition to soccer ones. Meg Swanick is with us now from Qatar. She's writing about the tournament for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Bleacher Report, and her Substack, The Swan Dive with Meg Swanick, which is great, and you should subscribe. Hey, Meg. Hey, how are you doing? Great. Uh, sounds like it's already been a busy morning your time in Doha uh, pretty crazy news conference with U.S. and Iranian coaches and players. It started with Iranian media applauding the Iran coach, Carlos Karosh, as he walked in. Tell us about what went down at the news briefing. Yeah, I feel pretty confident I'll live my whole life and never be in a press conference that uh, eventful. As you said, it started with applause, uproarious applause from the Iranian press as, as their manager and, and team came in. Throughout the first half, when, when Iran had their, their go, there actually was a good bit of football or soccer-related content. Toward the end, though, they were asked not just about the flag that came out of U.S. social media channels, but also former coach Jurgen Klinsmann had made some clumsy, ill-worded comments about um, diving or some cheating tactics being part of Iran's culture. So that's also got them a little bit fired up as well. Those questions came out. Um, Carlos kind of pointed the finger back at the U.S., made a comment about school shootings, made a comment about racism in the U.S. That kind of wrapped up Iran's press conference. The in-between the press conferences, we had about 30 minutes. That got exciting also. All the, it was the most crowded press conference I'd seen at the World Cup yet. So just an absolutely packed room, cameras going crazy. Um, and the, the journalists in the room were having a conversation. The Iranian reporters, there were a lot of British reporters. It was polite, but, you know, energetic um, in between the press conferences. And something I thought was interesting there is the Iranian reporters were feeling a little bit attacked, felt like there was a good amount of hypocrisy. And they said the clapping, which happened multiple times throughout the press conference, was acknowledging that this manager was standing up for an Iran who's overly criticized. And then Tyler Adams, the American captain, gets up, is corrected on his pronunciation of Iran, and is asked about, he's um, you know a young Black man, is asked about representing a country where there's racism and discrimination. And it seemed like looking at what his response was, he handled himself with a plum. Again, he's like 23 years old or, or something like that and is um, having to deal with all these questions that have absolutely nothing to do with what is an enormously important game if you get rid of the political implications. What was your sense of whether it's Tyler Adams or Greg Berhalter, the manager, or other players, how they're kind of navigating what's become both 
the biggest game, on-field game of their lives and a game that's just taken on this kind of enormous political stuff off the field. Yeah, I think, first of all, Tyler Adams is a commendable captain. He, he's the right guy to be leading this team. It's the second youngest team in this tournament, but they've all achieved so much in their careers already. They live abroad, have lived in multiple countries abroad, have an incredible track record of representing the country at, at a lot of levels. Tyler and, and, and Berhalter fielded no shortage of questions uh, on that note. They were asked, why is there a naval ship in Iranian waters? Why is it difficult for Iranians to visit the U.S. Uh, with the visa situation? You know, school shootings brought up again, Black Lives Matter brought up again, and, and he was vociferously uh, corrected in his pronunciation of Iran. And yeah, he said, you know, thank you for that correction. I'll pronounce it correctly going forward. We're always learning. Our country is always learning and improving. And as long as you're improving, that's the point. You say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. Second of all, um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. I grew up in a, in a white family with an obviously an African-American heritage and background as well. So um, I had a little bit of uh, different cultures and I, I was very, very easily able to assimilate in different different cultures. So, um, you know, not everyone has that that ease and uh, the ability to do that. And obviously it takes longer to understand. And through education, I think it's it's super important. Like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of, of your country. So, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process. I think is as long as you so a really good answer from Tyler there and I think overall in answering these questions you know Tyler's a good representative and the team is a really cohesive unit I think it's one of the best attributes of this team is they are a brotherhood they're young they're similar in age they're going through similar experiences they're very close and I think that that's allowed them to really kind of tune out all of the stuff going on, either in relation to this specific game or to the World Cup generally, because there's no shortage of outside human rights issues surrounding the World Cup and questions they've been getting about that. But they're trying and doing a really good job, I think, of staying focused on the strategy and tactics of how they're going to win the most important game this team has played in, you know, eight years I was looking and following that press conference on Twitter, and I can imagine that Burhalter and Tyler Adams, there are a lot of other athletes that would have, or, or people involved in sports that would have, like, bombed in that moment. Um, it didn't seem like they did, um, from what I can tell. So was there a sense that they were being prepared for a hostile environment coming in to today, or... Were they just, are they just so worldly that uh, they managed to handle it with a sort of aplomb that you would not have expected? Absolutely a combination of the two, I think. I really cannot emphasize enough what an incredible character Tyler Adams is. I mean, speaking to him, interviewing him, he, he really is an impressive person. He's done so much in his career. He's in the Premier League. Um, so I think it's partly just his character. I think also this team is definitely being prepared to field these questions, definitely being told that 
this press conference was going to go that way. There was also a press conference last night that got a little bit heated. Tyler wasn't there. It was two other players, Tim Ream and Walker Zimmerman. So surely that set the stage for this being a little bit additional. Um, And I think leading into this World Cup, even looking at the broader picture beyond, beyond just the Iran game, I know for certain that there was a lot of preparation for the questions they would be fielding about that. So a combination of character and preparation, for sure. You know, a lot of this feels like a bit of an own goal on the part of U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer over the weekend chose to remove the Islamic Republic emblem from the country's flag on a couple of posts on uh, Twitter and Instagram and said that they had done this to support women in Iran fighting for basic human rights. Um, It really seemed like a a stupid idea. There were other ways, I think, to, to draw attention to what's happening in Iran. And it feels to me like they created this political issue. And I can't imagine that Berhalter or the players wanted to be sitting there answering these questions the day before what you accurately describe as the most important match in eight years, and in some ways the most important match ever, because this is a team that genuinely should advance and has the ability to advance and has played as well or or better than anyone else in this group, namely England, so far. I, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. And And first of all, with the general idea of supporting women's rights in Iran, I think we can likely all agree on that front and the players would also, uh, but it feels ill-timed. It feels random. I don't know why that specifically was how the Federation chose to show that support. Um, it it was up for a day or a few days and then it disappeared. It was only on social media, not anywhere on the website. They deleted the tweets. It's just a strange situation. And then compounding the strangeness of how they decided to show the solidarity is the players and Greg Berhalter have said they were never consulted. So ahead of this really big game, according to the players and according to Berhalter, they were unaware that this was even happening. And and it was only when it became a huge issue that they've become unfortunately aware that this was something that they were wearing around as the, the team that was making that statement. So the Iranian team did not sing the national anthem before their first game against England. They were seemingly instructed that that was not okay and kind of half-heartedly mouthed the words before their second game against Wales. And that's the thing that I think is so fascinating here when at that press conference you have the dynamic of like Iran against the United States. There's also kind of Iran against Iran going on here. And so I guess the Americans, especially if you have the Americans are not respecting the Iranian flag. The Americans are not pronouncing the name of our country correctly. Maybe there would be some unity there. And America has obviously been an enemy of Iran for um, many, many decades. And so do you get the sense that (laughs) this is like strangely bringing the Iranian team or the country together? Or is that just kind of simplistic and naive? And are these divisions kind of way too persistent and innate to where the country is right now to suggest that there's a kind of coming together in this moment? I tend to think that it does add some fire to them feeling like they can really galvanize to want to beat the Americans who are disrespecting them or being hypocritical even. 
Um, one of the more interesting parts of the press conference, you know, when it was Iran's turn versus the U.S.'s turn was very interesting. But in between, you know, there was a gaggle of journalists having a conversation and a lot of the Iranian reporters were making something along the lines of that argument that um, they brought up as well. Some, I think a British reporter had brought up that the fans were booing the national anthem, which is true. I actually was at the England-Iran game and they were booing the national anthem anthem, which is an interesting element to it as well. The Iranian reporters were saying it was only half of them. So there was division in the stands, apparently, about how to handle that national anthem from the supporters as well. Um, but they were saying that when it comes to this game and when it comes to the football team, Iran is Iran and everyone wants to support Iran. So I think that there is some kind of coming together there. And I do think that all of this, and I think it being the United States, I do think that lends some weight to a galvanizing force of togetherness and, and really adding that extra energy to wanting to win. You know, for a lot of people that are not as learned uh, in soccer, you know, they may be surprised to find out, in, in, at least, you know, just from what I've read, it seems like Iran is not a team that America, that people should just assume that America is just going to win and make the knockout round. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it seems like there's a, a potential here that they could c- complicate uh, U.S.'s aims of uh, having a successful World Cup here. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, I think you, you see that people who, who are just tuning into the World Cup and getting excited about it, even the game against, I mean, England obviously carries a lot of prestige, but people were, I saw some people in an uproar about, you know, the draw with Wales, which we also should have won, but Wales is a good team. Um, similarly, Iran, it would be foolish to overlook them and, you know, discount how well they do in the Asian Confederation. They also, I mean... They've played the U.S. twice, once in a friendly, I think it was 2000, and it was a draw. And then in 1998, and they ended our World Cup dreams then. So this is a team we played twice. We've never beat them. Um, They're well coached. Carlos is an incredible manager, very well respected in world football. Um, They have very lethal strikers. They've scored in both of their games where we've struggled to get goals, even when we're dominating the game. Uh, And they also are very strong defensively. Their opening match against England is, is I think, a little bit misleading. England obviously really gave them a trouncing. Yeah, yeah. Really severe scoreline there. They completely, you know, they had their goalkeeper was injured. They had to send in the second goalkeeper. I think that kind of rattled them a little bit. And then England's midfield just completely ran through them. But they turned it around against Wales. They didn't sit back. They really went for it against Wales and, and were really impressive in that game. So this is a team, really, that the United States should treat as a formidable opponent. The good news is the U.S. team is, and they're taking it very seriously. I mean, Karosh is uh, also a master of, of, of parking the bus, as they say in soccer, playing defensively when they have to. Iran only needs a tie in this game on Tuesday to advance out of the group. The United States has to win. And Carlos Carosh knows the United States. He's coached in the United States. He's worked with the U.S. national team program, I mean, 20 plus years ago, I think. Um, he has managed multiple international national sides. Um, he, he knows the game and he knows what to do here. You know, this is a risky situation. This is the best U.S. team, I think, talent-wise we've ever had. But we're in a similar situation that the United States has been in in the past. Um, you mentioned the 1998 game. Um, that was not a team that was at this level. They had lost their first game in the tournament. Iran was the second game. 
I was there, and the parallels are pretty stark politically. The Iran team used the country's political um, hatred of the United States as motivation, and they ended up winning the game in what was a crazy, raucous environment inside the stadium in Lyon. And as I read about last night's press conference and read about this morning's press conference and saw what U.S. soccer did over the weekend with the Iranian flag, I just have had this sort of creeping, you know, feeling, this uncomfortable feeling that you could get an environment that turns against the United States. The big difference is that the U.S. team in 98 kind of sucked and was divisive and was basically ready to go home after one game. This team is, again, super talented and motivated and believes that they can advance through this tournament. Yeah, I, I you know, I think it's a, a bit funny the parallels that history has for us. And a lot of the scene has been set to potentially look like 1998 in terms of the energy that the Iranian team will have in wanting to beat us. But agree also that that team was in meltdown status. There was infighting in the team. They didn't like their manager. And it's the exact opposite with this team. Um, you know, they love each other. They're friends. They hang out. It's a tight knit community of of players. And I think they're doing a good job of getting into the right mentality for the game tomorrow. So I have to hope that that manifests in a better result than 1998, but certainly the excitement is is on that level. Yeah, in World Cups, it's just such small sample sizes that you can kind of slice this and dice this in all different ways. I saw a, a statistic, I guess, that the U.S. has only lost one game in normal time in the last three times they've been in the... World Cup. They've also only won one of their last group stage games, their third group stage games ever in the World Cup. And, you know, it's a lot of uh, responsibility, a lot of pressure. I think there will be no lack of motivation for either side. So to suggest that Iran will be more motivated, I mean, you could look at that motivation as maybe if the U.S. gets the first goal, then there could be a, a opportunity for them to like crumble under the pressure and, vi- and vice versa, that if the U.S. gets behind, they will probably struggle too. But, you know, it's the day before the, the match, um, it's hard not to think of this as just a massive opportunity because the last time like this where they needed a win in the last group stage game was the time when they did get a win in their last group stage game against Algeria in 2010, which not only was a victory, it was the best, most memorable moment for American soccer in modern times, Landon Donovan's uh, goal, um, which just was enormous for for the game and just as a highlight and is the thing that I still think about and remember. So there's a chance for somebody to create a moment like this again on Tuesday. I was at that game too, Josh. Um, <laughs> Meg, can you stick around and talk to us in the bonus segment about the rest of the tournament? I would love to. Excellent. Meg Swanick is writing about the World Cup for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Bleacher Report, and her substack, The Swan Dive with Meg Swanick. We'll post a link to that on our show page. Meg, thanks so much. Thank you. Up next, it's our friend Ben mathis Lilly to talk about Michigan's heroic triumph over Ohio State on Saturday.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. In the first quarter of Saturday's game between undefeated Ohio State and undefeated Michigan, it looked to me like the Buckeyes were going to have their way with the Wolverines. They drove down the field with ease on their first possession and didn't seem like Michigan could do much to stop C.J. Stroud and his ridiculously talented receivers. That Marvin Harrison Jr., he's quite a Marvin Harrison. Um, and then when Michigan did score to tie the game on a long pass from J.J. McCarthy to Cornelius Johnson, it seemed like kind of a fluke. Then, when Michigan took the lead on another long pass from J.J. McCarthy to Cornelius Johnson, seemed like a little bit less of a fluke. And then, a few hours later, when the scoreboard said Michigan 45, Ohio State 23, that really didn't seem like a fluke. And uh, now that Michigan has won this game two years in a row after losing 15 of the previous 16, seems like maybe something fundamental has shifted in this rivalry. Joining us now, a man who's his coat is looking more lustrous. His his teeth are looking uh, whiter. It's our nation's leading Wolverineologist and scholar of Harbolytics. It's the author of the book, The Hot Seat, Slate senior writer, Ben Mathis Lilly. Hello, Ben. Hey, guys. So I'm curious if you felt the way I did watching the beginning of the game, especially considering the Michigan star running back, Blake Corum, was out injured. And Michigan's whole deal vis-a-vis Ohio State has been that they're going to out-tough them rather than out-talent them. Yeah, it's funny. I was uh, leaving for the airport, actually. I felt like I would um, get a huge uh, karma bonus. Uh, for a couple friends of mine who were getting back from an eight-hour flight uh, from Berlin asked me to pick them up at the airport without realizing uh, what they were exactly was going on at that time. But I figured that it would be it, it would be uh, good for our mojo if I if I did the solid for them. So I was actually heading out at the end of the first quarter. And talking to my wife, and I said, "Yeah, it just seems like we're back to the old days, where it's like, okay, we had a we had a good year, uh, you know, we 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 had some spicy games, and now here we are at Ohio State, and they're just like a better team, and they're the guys are better, and they're just going to probably eventually break the dam and win, and then um, possibly because of my my generous act in uh, in leaving." Uh, Michigan started uh, putting it on him a little bit, but I, I would say I didn't even. I, I maybe it wasn't even until the fourth quarter that I really thought that, that they had a chance to do it, but um, but apparently they did. Well, let's go to this moment in the game when the Buckeyes are trailing by four, six minutes to go in the third, fourth and ten at the Michigan forty-eight. Ryan Day chooses to punt, right? And look, that's fine. Like that's. <laughs> You know, that's that's coaching. That's good. That's good old football coaching. But I wonder if you saw that in the lens that I did, which is that, oh, shit, 
Ryan Day realizes he might not have the better football team right now. Did it did it flip for you like that when he made that, or did it happen on some other play during the it, game? It was that stretch of the game, yeah. I mean, there was, um, I think Michigan had a possession either, either right before or right after that where they started running the ball a little, um, and it started to look like the kind of game that Michigan likes to have. I think they had 10 yards rushing in the first half, as Josh alluded to. Um, but, but they opened it up, you know, the kind of classic, uh, you know, formulation, you hit some long passes, they got to put their safeties back and then you start running the ball and that, that started to happen. And that was when it started to creep into my mind, like, wait a minute, like this is, this is us playing our game, you know, instead of, uh, you know, kind of hitting some big fluky plays like it was in the first half. And, and, and that was when it, when it, when it started to click, same thing with, with day, I mean, he's been getting a a lot of grief for those decisions, which, you know, I mean, it's fair enough. They lost the game, uh, and probably, and if, you know, if they got to do it again, they'd go for it. But they, they weren't converting those, those situations. Um, and, and if, you know, if you go back and look at, at how Michigan won on defense, they stopped him on third and three, on fourth and one. And it got to the point where, I mean, that's almost a, a, a defensible decision from him because they just weren't picking those, they just won't, weren't picking those uh, first downs up anyway. So, you know, it's almost like it didn't matter what, what he did there. So is there a fundamental resetting now? In the Michigan fans' brain, then, <laughs> do we need to win? Do you need to win the uh, national championship, or again, like last year, it's just going to be nice enough to get there? Oh, I yeah, I mean, it's all gravy for me. Um, it's going to take a few more of these before I get used to them for sure. I I do think that it's it's kind of nice to be looking across, you know, the state line, as it were, and and see that it's it's kind of like their program and their fan base that's that's losing its mind and kind of eating itself at this point cuz I've certainly lived that um for the last last 15 years or so um and uh so I, I it does feel like um in a weird way a little um even though last year's win was maybe maybe more convincing physically this one is seems a little more sustainable in, in that Ohio State kind of is just really coming to terms now with the fact that it, you know, maybe have some problems. You know, I think they're getting overstated by Ohio State fans. Still have problems. So problems. They're forty-five and five yeah. in their last fifty days. They have like <laughs> the, the number two recruiting class in the country every year, pretty much. Yeah, no problems. I, I, I mean, for the record, I absolutely don't think Ryan Dave should be on the hot seat. I mean, I think that there's some there's some things to fix, but like, I, I don't think firing him is the way to fix them. But it 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 does feel a little more like this year, like okay, like we 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 really we we may really have something here at Michigan, and and they might actually have some some deficiencies that that aren't going to be addressed just by bringing in another you know ten five stars or whatever. So it's not the dog that's caught the car here. That's how I felt in the second half. Like my head was swimming. I felt a little bit like I was watching something from another universe, you know, like because because it really was like they were just Ohio State was the team that was kind of losing it. You know, they they had a lot of bad penalties. They had some, you know, they had you know Marvin Harrison dropped his first pass of the year. Like it, that was that's the kind of um, performance in in tight games that that we've gotten used to seeing from from Michigan teams. And so I do think that the uh, situation has has shifted around a, a little bit, and and uh, it, it was um, it was fun to watch. So um, Matt Brown, who writes the Extra Points newsletter that I think a lot of us subscribe to, writes generally about like college administrative matters, but is also an Ohio State fan, and wrote with some at least self awareness about how he would be okay with Ryan Day like leaving at this point. He talked about. Um, the charge facing the day administration is that Ohio State is now soft. And so it got me thinking um, about 
victories and rivalry games. And after LSU's performance this past weekend, I choose to look back at the Alabama game as a happy memory. Um, but that was not a that was a victory that will not cost. I mean, I guess the season is not up to Alabama's uh, standard, obviously. But that was not a a game or a, a victory by LSU that will cause them to like reassess their entire like mission and program or in any sense. It was like LSU won on like a last second two point conversion. It's like, all right, um, they probably won't do it again next year is what I would think if I was at Alabama. Um, but it must be incredibly fun and satisfying to watch just the enormous kind of recriminations that are going on at Ohio State, the questioning of everything that they do in a sort of fundamental way, and the acknowledgement by the universe. And it's there, <laughs> there's like a kind of moral superiority that Michigan fans are very familiar and comfortable with around like, we might not have the best talent, but we're smarter, we're, you know, tougher, we're better. We're more ethical. <laughs> and it's all like kind of... Um, the the outcomes of these past couple games have all kind of fed into and played into that. And it's not just Michigan fans thinking it, it's Ohio State fans <laughs> thinking it now too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been really, it's been really satisfying for a lot of reasons. I mean, but one of them is the one you mentioned, like I, it's almost like too much of a cliche. The hero of the game was um, Michigan's nickelback, Mike Sainer still. Um, he was a three-star recruit. He's from, he's from Massachusetts, which is not, you know, a, um, a place where a lot of top college football players come from. He played, uh, wide receiver until this year. Um, he switches to defense and then has, you know, I think the biggest play of the game where he breaks up a, t- a touchdown pass, what would have been a touchdown pass in the end zone in the fourth quarter. He had a couple other stops on third and fourth down, pass breakups. He's a guy, if you go onto his biography on Michigan's, you know, on Michigan's athletic department website, it mentions that, you know, he plays guitar and piano and sings in his church choir. Like he is just like the epitome of a Jim Harbaugh kind of Michigan Renaissance man. And for him to be the guy who's the hero of the game, it's almost a little too perfect. So before we luxuriate in the crisis of institutional confidence in Columbus, um, <laughs> I think it's already too late. I think we've already been yeah. we've well, been I, we've been I, luxuriating. You're just late well, to the party here, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just I want to address Michigan and Michigan fans, uh, particularly the one uh, in front of us right now, because two years ago, many Michigan fans wanted Jim Harbaugh gone. Um, and, you know, during that pandemic shortened season, they, I think they went two games and everybody was like, all right, doesn't look like this is the guy to beat Ohio State. Two years later, Michigan is better than Ohio State and it's not a fluke. Uh, and I've always thought that Jim Harbaugh is one of the best coaches of this generation. So what have Michigan fans learned, if anything, from this change in fortune in the past couple of years? Well, I think my reaction to the to the Ryan Day stuff after the game was like, hey, you guys should keep him. Like, hey, you know, see, what, it worked for us. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to point out, though, in, in, in my defense and in the defense of my people, uh, going two and four – with the, I think the worst loss at Michigan Stadium in in eighty or ninety years or something like that is a little different than going eleven and one with the loss in a rivalry game. So I, I wouldn't say that it was exactly. I, I don't know if you can say we were um, being entirely irrational or or hyperbolic after after that season. And and keep in mind at the point at that point in time he was also zero and five against Ohio State. So this wasn't just like oh hey dropped a couple of close games. Uh, you know, that's it. We were we were wrong, and, and they were right. Like that. I mean, it was it was the right move to keep them for for a lot of reasons. 
Um, ben, what coach did you want to hire, and what was the score of that coach's <laughs> game against TCU this week, past weekend? Uh, that would be Matt Soup Campbell of Iowa State, who I think <laughs> is getting really treated very unfairly in the national press for for losing kind of just a series of coin flip games and, and has still done a tremendous job uh, over there in Ames and I, I think is still a, a good coach who could who could be successful uh, in uh, in a lot of different places and the other the other coach we wanted was Luke fickle who just got hired at Wisconsin too so it wasn't a, I don't know it wasn't a complete embarrassment. You guys wanted an Ohio State guy? What is this? Like? Was this kind of some some Bo Schimbeck list? That's right. I would, that's exactly uh, what it is. Okay. okay, okay. Ben Ben didn't say, but the score was sixty-two to fourteen. <laughs> and I think maybe Kevin, our producer, can do some magic, and we can replay Joel's comments about Jim Harbaugh and just insert. Joel instead saying Sonny Dykes, talking about a coach <laughs> having an undefeated season that maybe some fans didn't give a, a chance to. Um, but I saw a little bit on on uh, the famous Joel Anderson Saturday College Football thread that there was a little bit of, you know, I don't know if you would call it an apology uh, mm. for, for doubting um, Sonny, but I, I actually think, Joel, that this that result, the 62 to 14, is getting kind of underplayed nationally because Iowa State has an unbelievably good defense, third best defense in the country. And that was like a result we hadn't really seen from TCU all year is like stomping an inferior team. And so um, this is a, a team and a coach that's really, uh, you know, coming into it its own as we get towards playoff time. I yeah, know that I mean, makes you uncomfortable, but it's true. Like, I don't know how many times <laughs> I have to say that I was wrong about Sonny Dykes for this season. What, did you say it once before? You, this is like the second time. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I mean, how, many times, how, how many times we got to revisit old shit? Uh, but look, here's the thing is that I still think that Dion, in the long run, will probably be the better play here. I've, I'm open to being wrong about this, uh, and I'm happy that Sonny Dykes has done very well, but this is a one-season sample. I try not to read too much into one-season samples, which I encourage <laughs> Michigan fans to not do after 2020. Um, so we'll see. I'm a process guy, not a results guy. TCU has won a lot of close one-score games, which in the NFL is cool. In college, it suggests that maybe you're not quite as dominant is people think you are and uh, any of those games could flip next year we'll be cha- we'll be we'll be replacing Max Dugan uh and Sonny Dykes will have to find his own quarterback and so then we'll see a little bit more about like what the program is going to be under him but yeah I'm excited 12 and 0 that's great we may face Michigan in the playoff Ooh. win or lose spicy you know stuff I mean? yeah spicy. you know what I'm saying yeah. so, to that. I'm, I'm with so it. I'm curious what you think I mean uh, as as someone who I kind of like sadly admitted that Harbaugh's time at Michigan had come to its end in 2020. I wasn't like uh, I wasn't as gleeful as some people. I really had wanted him to to succeed and I, but I thought I did I will totally admit I I thought that he had not. I thought it was over. Um I think what I got wrong or I, I you know I learned at least I think I learned while working on my book was just the the extent to which like people inside the program may have a completely different view of a lot of things uh, than people outside. Um, I think a lot of fans thought like, well, there's just no way he can continue to go on. Even if we like this guy, like he's just lost all credibility with recruits, with the, with the team itself, with the other coaches. And that just, that just wasn't the case. And it wasn't even close to the case. Like they believed he could turn it around in 2021 when none of the fans did. So I'm curious, like what you think, I mean, what, what, what do you think um, kind of like went right for, for TCU that you didn't, that you didn't see maybe when 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 they brought Sonny in, which you know, I got to defend Joel, even though he's the one who who started this game of recriminations. Like 
it's Sunny Dykes wasn't like a universally acclaimed hire. Like it was, a lot of people thought how you thought the same thing you did. Exactly. No, I think the thing is, is that a lot of people thought that Sonny was sort of an underwhelming hire. If you're going to fire the guy that has a statue outside of your stadium, you don't hire Sonny Dykes, who had won one conference championship in 12 years as a head coach and had had plenty of time to prove himself in that role. Like it was just, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that you would go through the ugliness of getting rid of Gary Patterson for this guy. But what I had overlooked is that TCU hit looked shitty over the last four years in spite of having a lot of talent. They had like a lot of talent on that roster and a lot of speed. And Max Dugan, I was so mad. I was so frustrated that he was coming back as a quarterback. I was like, why do we keep bringing this guy back? Well, maybe the issue is that he's playing in an offense that helps him a lot more and has helped develop him and, you know, increase his confidence a little bit, getting, you know, getting some of the doing the things that he does really well, like kind of like a baby Tebow type um, <laughs> effect. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think Tim Tebow is great, so I don't think it's like some big, uh, <laughs> you know, amazing comparison to compare him to Any Tim indication Tebow. of Tim Tebow just makes me laugh. Yeah, right. I mean, this is like a baby Tebow. He's not as good as Tebow, not as accomplished as Tebow, but just sort of, you know, on a, on a, on a minor scale. So I overlooked how bad TCU had been and how poorly it had been coached over the last four years. I just remember every so many games I'd be like, man, we are just so fucking stupid. Sorry for cursing, but we did give a warning at the top of the podcast. But we were just so dumb, and we made so many mistakes. Sonny Dykes has cleaned a lot of that up. There's all this this talent here, and Max Dugan got to be better. He's a senior this year, and like that's the stuff that I missed. I didn't I didn't think it was going to happen. So all right, I want to I want to go forward a little bit because we have scenarios now for the college mm. football playoff. Uh, right now, it's going to look, it's probably going to be Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and USC as one to four in the rankings, which come out on Tuesday. Um, I was mocked a couple of weeks ago on this program for suggesting that Alabama might have a way to get into the uh, college football playoff. But suddenly it looks like, hmm, if TCU loses in the Big 12 championship game. If TCU loses in the Big 12 championship game, we should still be in the playoffs, but that's fine. And USC loses in the Pac-12 championship game. Ohio State got pretty much thrashed by Michigan. Alabama's sitting there with its two losses. I mean, I, I will admit that you were in there. Alabama, two I'm losses and no good wins. I'm waiting for the no fucking apology, people. <laughs> Bama, Bama with two, lo- two losses and no good wins. Give me Alabama's best win this year, by the way. Alabama Anybody. with two losses by a combined four points. We Now we know LSU is not a great top 10 team. So they lost that game. They lost to Tennessee at Tennessee. Who, who, who's t- Alabama's best win this year? Can anybody tell us? It's Ole Miss, right? It's Ole Miss. Oh, it's Ole yeah. Miss. Yeah. Falling, who's falling <laughs> yeah, apart. Okay. Yeah, I think, Stefan, is, you're definitely right that Alabama is more in contention than uh, Joel and I <laughs> thought they would be. I, I maintain that I'm right, that there's like absolutely no reason that they should be in yes. contention for the, the reason that Joel expressed. Like this notion that if you have good losses and haven't beaten anyone, like it's really Ben's fault that, that Ohio State got, um, <laughs> got so thoroughly thrashed because putting Alabama in ahead of Ohio State does not make any sense to me. Yeah, like, I'm, I stick up all. for Ryan Day. I'll, I'll stick up for him again. Like, I, it is, I think Ohio State's better resume than Alabama. I mean, they look better than Alabama. Way better. Yeah, Way they, better. Like, I, you know, I, as, as much as I enjoyed this narrative that Michigan dominated and bullied and beat them up again, like that, 
you know, that was a very close game until about, you know, what, six minutes left. It wasn't like, um, I, I, you know, they didn't, they didn't get run off the field. They kind of ran themselves off the field at the end, but, but it wasn't, I, I, you know, I don't think it was like they were shown to be like a complete fraud or anything. And I would, I would definitely put them in over at Alabama. Ben, I, I, I like what you're doing there. And it reminds me of the, the way I feel about Texas. Keep Steve Sarkeesian forever, <laughs> Texas. He's a great coach. You're not giving him enough time. Let him build, get his guys in there and build the program. So I, I kind of feel I'm, we're on the same page with yeah, that. You that know? Keep, keep, keep Rondé. Be patient. Let him get his guys in. Ben Mathis Lilly is a senior writer at Slate. He's the author of the book, The Hot Seat. He has gone now uh, two for three on coaches uh, profiled in the hot seat who've been fired after Willie, Willie Taggart. <laughs> Got fired, um, and the, the one yeah, so. is still uh, staying strong in Harbaugh. So I guess not a bad record, Ben. Yeah, the guy, the guy that we thought was going to lose his job, uh, he's still he, he's still going. Thanks, Ben. Up next, the Washington Post's big feature on Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's part of the Washington Post series on the NFL's decades-long failure to promote black coaches. David Marinus and Sally Jenkins profiled perhaps the most powerful owner in the league, Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys. Jones's record with black coaches and black executives hasn't been good at all. In his 33 years as owner, Jones has had eight head coaches, all of them white. During that time, just two of the team's offensive or defensive coordinators have been black. Jones and his team have tried to massage that bit of history by pointing out that he's got a black vice president of player personnel and an all-black strength and conditioning unit. But even Jones acknowledges that he hasn't done enough. Asked whether he believed that he had the influence within the league to change things, Jones admitted that, I do. What I'm saying is, I understand that. The profile goes on to talk about Jones's upbringing in Arkansas with a depth and clarity that I've never seen before, from talking about his father's grocery store that served black patrons during Jim Crow, to him serving water to black workers in his family's cotton fields. There's also the lead scene in the story, a photo of 15-year-old Jerry standing amid a crowd of white students harassing black students trying to integrate North Little Rock High School in 1957. There's a lot more to discuss about the story, but Stefan... What did you think of its central thesis that Jerry Jones and Jerry Jones alone could nudge the NFL toward improving its minority coaching record? You know, Joel, I spent a decade covering the NFL's business and interviewed Jerry Jones multiple times. And it's absolutely fair to say that Jones has had more influence over the business direction of the NFL from suing his fellow owners to getting more local marketing rights to exploiting the power of the NFL brand to fighting against too much revenue sharing for smaller market teams than any owner in history. But Jones has achieved all of that by, as, as the Post story shows, 
cutting deals and by fighting, and in some cases alienating his colleagues, anything as long as it added another buck to his bank account. Pushing the league forward on racial hiring is different. It would require an owner who is progressive and genuine or who recognizes the mainly social as opposed to monetary value in what might seem in the white ownership world to be politically difficult positions, someone who's willing to do the right thing. And there's nothing in this incredible profile by Marinus and Jenkins to indicate that Jones is that person or more accurately has evolved from his profoundly segregated life created through endless back-scratching and and glad-handing among wealthy white Southerners to become that person or even pretend to be that person. Nothing, that is, beyond Jones running his mouth, which has been his most consistent attribute. He's a bullshitter. I want to be the first in line when it comes to diversity, Jones says in the Post story, as if this is a new problem that he's identified and wants to lead on. Jones bought the Cowboys in 1989. The Rooney rule on racial hiring was implemented in 2003. As Marinus and Jenkins write, before and after the Rooney rule, the league regularly discussed its embarrassing minority hiring record. Jones seemed uninterested. Other things have been more important, one longtime former team executive said. Being powerful, that's what is important to him. I mean, come on. Jones hired Mike McCarthy, a white coaching retread, in 2020. This is not like he's staking out some unique territory, even though he'd like you to think that by saying these things, he is. Really great story and a really interesting piece kind of journalistically in terms of its form and that it's incredibly deep, both in its reporting in, well, first of all, that photograph. I mean, it's almost like uh, it it feels like something out of a, a movie, like that you can see Jones's like little Jerry Jones face just kind of peeking out from that the crowd with that level of of clarity. It's just a, such a striking image. Incredible. But the amount of um, people that they spoke with, and uh, Joel, you had it exactly right. The the sense that you're really kind of getting to know who Jerry Jones is in a way that we haven't before. But all of it kind of being done in service of an argument, which is really interesting. Like you usually see. There's like the classic argument-based essay that Sally Jenkins is kind of, when Sally Jenkins makes an argument, she makes an argument. Like she is very forceful and compelling as um, kind of a polemicist at, at times. But a piece, Joel, with this kind of depth of knowledge and rep- the amount of time that this took and kind of using it to sort of slowly undress <laughs> Jerry Jones and expose him, like Stefan said, as a bullshitter. I just found it like really interesting uh, formally, uh, in addition to all of the the big and small things that they were able to reveal. Yeah. And I really think that the interview was interesting for a number of ways. Like I came away sort of torn about Jerry Jones because it is true that he is representative of institutional white resistance to black advancement in the game in terms of being on the sidelines or being in the luxury boxes, right? Um, the, the guys running the, the, the thing. But it's notable that he was the only owner to go on the record and talk about this and that he's willing to engage in arguments with this. And, one, and, and, and actually, another thing that I thought that was really interesting and sort of telling about the person that he is is that In the story, they make a point of saying current and former Black employees felt free to discuss Jerry Jones and his shortcomings. And that's 
I mean, look, I'm not going to be a fool and sit up here and defend Jerry Jones and his record, hiring record. But I do think it says something about him that he's willing to engage with it publicly and to be accountable in some ways. Now, maybe some people could write that off as that, hey, he's so powerful, he's so far beyond accountability that it doesn't make a difference what he says. And him opening up and talking about it publicly is an, sort of an admission of that. But I tend to go in the other direction in that Jerry Jones is at least willing to grapple with it publicly in a way that none of the other NFL owners will or have. And I don't ever really sort of expect them to. That part of it was was really interesting to me. Also, I just just I had to comment about that damn picture, man, because I know that it's supposed to be. I know that it's supposed to be like this sober rendering, of, you know, this moment in history that is, you know, uh, this drama that is is horrible for people to go through, uh, or at least on one side of it. But I just thought it was like a curb your enthusiasm level of luck that you know Jerry Jones gets caught in the background of the most iconic photo of school desegregation. You know, like one of the most, like just for you to be the guy just caught up in the background of that. Like, it's just, it's like, I could call him, it's like he's the Forrest Gump of American racism. Like, how did the, how did you end up there? It doesn't make any sense. I don't really blame him for that either. Because I, I guess maybe in, in closing here, what I can say is that I'm not going to say that I represent all black people, but I would say that a lot of black people have such low standards for white men of that age and class. Right, that we don't we don't really have a lot of faith in people like Jerry Jones to do the right thing, to care about racial equality, any of that stuff. And so the fact that he's at least willing to talk about it and be sort of open to, you know, I could be doing better. I don't know. It I'm not gonna say it's encouraging, but it's just like you I'd rather work with that than than the alternative. I'm actually kind of surprised at how generous you are. And maybe it does have something to do with where you come from, Joel, and what your expectations are for someone like Jerry Jones. Because talking about it, I think, is just another way for Jerry Jones to avoid any accountability. It's his way of saying, I understand, I feel you, right? But that's Mm -hmm. classic deflection. Um, He can say, you're right, I get it, good point, we can do better, but... He doesn't do anything about it. And he's had every opportunity to do something about this in his career as an NFL owner. But as a lot of people in this piece, and this is, again, an incredibly deeply reported piece of journalism that combines, as you said, Josh, Sally's ability to make an argument with David Marinus's unparalleled ability to write a biography um, to report a biography. I mean, this is a guy that's done books about Vince Lombardi and Jim Thorpe and Bill Clinton. Um, and the ability to combine those two things to reveal the inner workings of his character. I mean, look, Jerry Jones, if he's so aware that like cronyism is how NFL hirings are made, and he talks about this piece about you. Just this is it's 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 who you know, and that's how it's done. That's just the way it's always been done. And he lectures a bunch of black coaches this year about how to get ahead in the game. And as an example, he tells a story about how when he was a thirty-year-old trying to get an oil deal, he persuaded Arkansas football coach Frank Broyles to invite an oil executive to play golf with him at segregated Augusta National Golf Club. Amazing moment. 
This is yeah. not exactly <laughs> the most self-aware man you just gotta or someone it, who you know? seems to have progressed <laughs> terribly far or has really bad PR or just doesn't listen to anything that anyone tells him, which I think is probably the explanation. So I recently read on this project that Xavier University, the historically black school in New Orleans, um, that some of their journalism students did called the Desegregation Generation, which is about um, three elementary school students uh, in New Orleans who integrated a white elementary school in 1960, Leona Tate, Gail Etienne, and Tessie Prevost. And they tell their story in their own words. And they also put together some of the newspaper coverage in the time from black and white newspapers. And it's really well done. And I found it really moving. Um, and a, a couple of the women, one of them talked about one of the white kids hitting her in the stomach with a baseball bat. Another one, um, they've all gone into just incredibly impressive lives. And one of them is now turning that school or has been working to turn that school into a museum um, about um, what they experienced and about the desegregation of schools in the South. Um, just incredibly impress impressive people. And I thought of that when I got to the part of this piece about Richard Lindsay, who was one of the six then kids, now uh, a man who um, integrated that school. And um, there's this paragraph, he was transformed by the trauma of that day. Instead of being a loudmouth dummy, I changed, he said. He became quieter, more studious. Anger burned inside him for a time, but gradually faded to determination. He, like all of the North Little Rock Six, he said, would go on to college. Um, he would eventually take over his family's restaurant business. What an impressive uh, guy and journey. And yet there's a photo of him and he's wearing a Dallas Cowboys hat. This is not a guy who is ever going to own the Dallas Cowboys, no matter how impressive he was or what he did. Um, and I think sort of like what Steven said, I think Jerry Jones understands that. Like he's not an idiot and he doesn't, it, it's not like he's lacking in empathy um, but nor has he done anything to change the NFL or the country, frankly, where he has a lot of power to change things. Um, and so Joel, I guess I'm curious, you know, your parents both grew up in Arkansas kind of during this generation. Your parents also both very impressive and had achieved a lot in their lives. And so I'm wondering, kind of reading about what like Richard Lindsay went through and, you know, the pieces about Jerry Jones, but, um, you know, Richard Lindsay really stuck out for me in reading it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a part of the desegregation, um, photos and documentation from that time. That's sort of missing catching back up with those kids, um, and finding out how those moments impacted them. And I was, I mean, I don't know if you guys had that experience in reading the story. I was like, oh, shit, this is in here? Yeah, I just, you know, like you're reading it, you're scrolling down, and I'm like, oh, I didn't realize they were going to actually get to that piece of it. And I thought that was a really thoughtful and humane way to handle it. And it also leads into the idea that, yeah, Jerry should have apologized and been more contrite about his participation in that day. There's no way around it. Uh, he thinks it's comedic hijinks, but he actually participated in a, a national embarrassment, like a tragedy. Um, but that photo but was, was just like really... Telling, striking to me that like for all this guy has achieved like he's wearing a, a the hat of the team that jerry jones owns yeah man, you know and i think so and I, I, I don't know if i can uh illuminate this a little bit some of it is that i covered the cowboys a little bit 
when I was in college, just out of college. And it's true that Jerry Jones is involved in in the lives of his players. Um, and that it is a very familial type of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can, you can feel sort of like the environment around the Cowboys is different than almost any other NFL team for a number of reasons. And that's a part of it. And as a part of that, Cowboys have a special place in the heart of black fans. And I don't know if NFL fans notice that because black fans don't often get thought of, um, in the, is the typical NFL fan. But if you go to any city in this country, um, there will be a substantial number of black Dallas Cowboys fans, particularly in Washington, D.C. Oh, definitely in D.C., <laughs> just because of the contrast between the team's records on integration, actually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, the Cowboys were one of the first to draft and sign players out of HBCUs, and they had prominent black stars way before, you know, that Washington football team, but a number of others. So, yeah, man, I, you're right. Like, I, you look at that picture, that guy's wearing a Cowboys hat, but that's, <laughs> it's just... I think that's why when you, you, Stefan, when you thought I was being generous to Jerry Jones, it's just, it's, we don't have a lot of expectation out of people in this country when it comes to race and racism. We just don't. And we're really asking at the, at the end of the day for just like the most minimal of respect and, um, inequality. Like just like we don't even, you know, we're not even really asking for anything that's crazy. We're just basically asking the things that were, were due to us um, when we're as citizens in this country. But on the way to doing that sort of stuff, like you're going to like things and support people that are racist or participated in racist stuff. And that's how you end up with that guy wearing the Dallas Cowboys hat. You know, it's just like, well, man, if I did, if I couldn't like things that were racist in this country, I mean, what the hell am I supposed to like? You know, I mean, I couldn't like TCU. <laughs> you know what I mean? I couldn't root for TCU at all, at all serious if I really investigated even their current record today. But that's just how it is. Um, and so that's why, that's how I ended up with Jerry Jones. And I think that's how Mr. Lindsay, he ends up in, in that position as well. That, hey man, I mean, I know this guy, I know this thing, but like, what, what, am I, what do you want me to do? It's up to Jerry Jones. And I think maybe that's the frustrating part is that Jerry Jones could do something, right? And he just chooses not to. Right. You know, the piece also talks about how Jones has been so generous with former players, um, Emmett Smith among them, business advice, trying to get them, you know, get, like he let Emmett Smith sit in on all of his meetings, open door policy when he was transitioning out of the game. All you have um, to do is win multiple Super Bowls for him. That's all it takes. He'll let you sit in on his meetings. Yeah. It's not asking um, much. But it, it, you know, the, the overwhelming impression I get is that the paternalistic attitude that Jones, like most NFL owners, take toward the players, who are mostly, of course, black, reflects who they are and how they go through life. Um, and I'm reminded, Josh, of something I wrote, like, I think it was in 2008, when I did a piece about Hard Knocks, the HBO series, and they followed the Cowboys during training camp. And there's a scene in one of the episodes where Jerry Jones's kid is talking. I'm not sure if he's talking to Jerry. I can't remember. And I didn't say in the piece who was talking to whom. But it was definitely Jerry Jones's kid who works for the team and was probably talking to Jerry. And they are looking at a rookie running back, I think. And the... Just the words and the looks on their faces just made you feel like, oh, they just think these guys are chattel, which is what they think. Look at this, he says. We're going to have some fun with him, aren't we? 
like admiring him, and I said, like a blue ribbon steer at the county fair. And that sort of, of, of paternalism is what I think is the hardest thing for these owners to get over. That when you say owner, they mean owner. And yeah, there's um, Emmett Smith's experience, and there was Maurice Carthon's experience. Maurice Carthon was the offensive coordinator under Parcells, says, like many people, he had a good relationship with Jerry Jones. Never thought that he was ever going to be the Cowboys head coach under Jerry Jones. Yeah, I mean, that vice president of player personnel. I mean, just, I just real quick, just before we close out here, just I just want you guys to think about what it says um, about that guy that he's had this time in the NFL, he's worked his way up. But you know what Jerry Jones noticed that helped him to get up there? That he attended some one of his grandson's sporting events. Yeah, this is the black VP of player personnel. And instead of noticing his football acumen, what stood out to him, uh, what stood out to Jerry Jones was that he had attended Jerry Jones's grandkids' graduation. Right. And and I point that out not not, uh, not just because it's embarrassing and, and, and condescending uh, to, to the man itself, but it's just it's a reminder, I'm not letting Jerry Jones off the hook. I know who he is. We know who he is. Um, and that's the part of it that's frustrating. He could do better, but he just chooses not to for any number of reasons. And, um, yeah, man, you just, you hope that whoever is the next Jerry Jones is a little bit more thoughtful about this stuff, or at least they'll be thoughtful and then inclined to action. And that's sort of the missing piece right here. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And now it is time for Afterball, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. And to my great consternation, the Washington Commanders have uh, been winning games. Don't like <laughs> to see it. Hate to see it. To be honest, to be perfectly honest. And Brian Robinson, uh, who I do like to see succeed as a part of that, he was shot twice in Northeast Washington, D.C. not long ago. I think like 91 days ago, according to this Washington Post piece. Where in Northeast? Do you know? I used to live in Northeast. Let's click on this uh, story and see. You don't have to. Okay. 1,000 block of H Street, Northeast. Oh. So he's back with the team. He had a really great game against the Falcons on Sunday. uh, 100 yards rushing. Also caught two balls for 20 yards and a touchdown. And some really like good and powerful Running And then in the locker room afterwards, he wore a big hat. So that is obviously what we're um, 
paying attention to, um, the big hat. So he said uh, in the locker room, when asked about the big hat, his friend has a big hat company. If you want a big hat, let me know. Just very, very uh, friendly. So this is Noggin Boss. They were actually on Shark Tank. I don't feel like I need to give them a lot of uh, publicity. And I can actually note that it costs $75 to get one of these big hats, and custom art is another $50. So I don't know if I could actually endorse or recommend spending $125 on this enormous hat, especially if it has a Commander's logo. But if you're thinking about how big is this big hat, think about think about it in your mind, and then like double it in size. It's a very large hat, so it made for a good photo. It's not just a hat, um, it's a baseball cap. It is a baseball cap. And he had it on backwards. Um, I said it looked pretty good on Brian Robinson, I got to say. I, tr- I truly thought that it had been photoshopped on his head at first. <laughs> I really did. I think Ro- Roger Sherman of The Ringer, I think, had the best line, which was that what we've learned here is that Brian Robinson is a very good friend. <laughs> <laughs> Joel, what is your Brian Robinson's big hat? My Brian Robinson big hat. So last Saturday night out here on the West Coast, not too far from my townhouse, in fact, uh, Stanford head football coach David Shaw approached the podium after a season-ending 35-26 to loss to BYU. That defeat dropped Stanford to 3-9, and its second consecutive season with that record. Shaw launched into his usual post-game spiel, touting the effort of his players, despite coming up short again. And then Shaw quickly pivoted to the future. I uh, just informed the team um, that I just coached my last game at Stanford. Um, it's been a great 16 years. It really has. Um, it took me a while to get up up here. I basically had to hug the entire football team one at a time. You know, Shaw paused as if to catch himself and then explained why he was doing this now. But it was easy to understand. Shaw leaves as the winningest coach in Stanford history, going 96-54 and 54 over the past 12 seasons. He took over for predecessor Jim Harbaugh in 2011 and led Stanford to three Pac-12 championships and Rose Bowls in four seasons shortly thereafter. But after winning at least nine games in each of his first eight seasons... The downward trend started in 2019 when the Cardinals finished 4-8. and eight. They never won more than four games in a season again, including the 4-2 and two record during the pandemic-shortened season. But there will be plenty of time to talk about what this means for Stanford in a rapidly changing college football environment that includes NIL and the transfer portal. And just keep in mind, you know, before I move on, that the 11 other teams in the Pac-12 had an average of 26 transfers on their roster. Stanford... Only had one. So that'll be left to somebody else to figure out. But what I wanted to note about Shaw's resignation, however, is that it means the loss of the most tenured black head coach in college football and the winningest Power Five black head football coach. Um, and this, you know, comes on the same in the same show where we talk about the NFL's hiring record vis-a-vis uh, Jerry Jones. But College hasn't been doing all that great either. And for, for far too long, it's been easy to overlook the work Shaw put in here in Palo Alto. He was an alum, a former wide receiver from 91 to 94. He'd been on the coaching staff since 2007, working under Jim Harbaugh until taking over the program in 2011 when Harbaugh went on to coach the 49ers. And while some might be all too willing to credit Harbaugh with building the foundation that Shaw used to thrive, 
Sean made the most of his advantages. I mean, first of all, just look at the place. It's beautiful out here. He leaned into that real hard. He talked about the academic benefits of playing and graduating from Stanford, of which there are many. He was polite, sometimes even warm with the media, which is you know not common. Um, but again, he's not like he was dealing with a lot of media. When he announced his resignation, there were like five reporters there. He was a soft-spoken cerebral man, not a soft man. At the height of his program's success, Stanford's mantra was intellectual brutality, leaning hard on offensive linemen and tight ends to bully light in the ass teams built for the spread error. That didn't hold for long, of course, and it was actually sort of nice, maybe even a little corny to have someone like Sean on the sideline, a man who really seemed to care about his players in a way that feels almost foreign among elite CEO-like coaches of today. In fact, here's a telling quote from the Athletics postmortem on Sean Stanford. Coach Shaw is everything that's right about football. But football is not about being right. It's about winning. And that's probably true. But it meant something that the longest tenured black head coach in Power Five was running a program held up as a model for how it could be if everyone was interested in something other than winning. In a sport where black athletes are the bulk of the labor force, it was good to know that at least one of the coaches was trying to create a program that wasn't so transactional. And it's worth mentioning that as recently as two years ago, Five of the Pac-12's head coaches were black. Remember Carl Durrell, Herm Edwards, Jimmy Lake, Kevin Sumlin? After Shaw's resignation on Saturday, the league is down to zero. And across the sport, only 13 of 131 FBS programs have a black coach. That's a little less than 10%. Shaw is only 50, a fact that shocked me when I was reminded of that this weekend. He likely has another chapter two to go, hopefully in football. He, like Stanford, will have to grapple with the new realities of college football somewhere else. But... While I would think Shaw could get back into the game someday if he wants to, I actually was sort of thinking, you know what? I wouldn't assume that. You know, several years ago at the height of his success, Shaw's name could frequently be found among those lists of black NFL head coaching candidates. You know, when they do the uh, Rooney Rule thing. You know, it's Eric Bieniemy, Brian Leftwich, David Shaw. Well, I don't see that anymore. And it's been a number of years since anyone has mentioned him as a possible candidate for a college job either. But it's not just David Shaw. Go look at the list of head coaching candidates right now and see how many black coaches and assistants you can find on there. There's obviously Dion, and understandably so. He's already reportedly been offered the Colorado job that opened up when Carl Durrell was fired two months ago. So who's next up? Willie, after Willie Taggart was fired over the weekend, I saw candidates listed as in the running. Florida A&M's Willie Simmons and Penn State running backs coach Jawan Cedar for one of the worst jobs in FBS, Florida Atlantic. But Cadillac Williams has barely given any consideration at Auburn before the school moved on to Lane Kiffin and Hugh Freeze. Mickey Joseph is gone now that Nebraska season is over. Arizona State's already found its man. It might be a while before another candidate the caliber of David Shaw emerges for quite a while. And hey, look, maybe Stanford will be better off. But college football definitely won't. He had such a great run at the beginning of his tenure, and it's always kind of confusing when someone who has that sort of consistent success really falls off in the way that his program did. And it's, I guess, a testament to his kind of self-awareness to understand that it was time to move on, because that's a quality that he seemed to have a lot of that most college football coaches don't. Um, But it's sort of like what you were saying with Gary Patterson, Joel, that a guy who we can all acknowledge as one of the great coaches in the modern era can also just kind of fall off for reasons that I think it's hard for us to understand. And as far as his future goes, you know, there's been all of this kind of 
talk both kind of seriously and half jokingly over the years about how college football needs a commissioner. And I wonder if that would be a role mm. that he would be well suited for as somebody who's uh, been extremely successful at the highest level of the sport, um, but also seems like there may be past coaching at at this point. Um, but you're right that I think college football um, would benefit from having him be involved and not just like as a talking head in a, in a studio. Um, there's, you know, we've got like the Dan Mullins of the world who are hmm. well suited to that job. Stanford feels like an interesting case. Um, if you read between the lines or you don't even have to read that much between the lines in Shaw's press conference, um, he, you get the sense that, well, this might have been mutual, but at the same time, this might have been just him deciding that this is the right moment because, because I can't change things. Um, you know, transfer portal, realignment. There are a lot of issues that Stanford's going to face. And he said, quote, Stanford historically doesn't change quickly. We are methodical. It's been difficult, but it's been difficult for everybody. And he then went on to say that the transfer portal is going to be very enticing to current Stanford players. And, you know, we talked, you, you mentioned just Shaw's ethics and how he approached this differently from so many other college football coaches. But at the same time, without those elements that allow coaches and universities to compete, what does he do? Maybe he saw the writing on the wall and just that Stanford's not going to get there quick enough for us to win seven or eight or nine games again. And I don't want to be part of that, especially when I'm only 50. Yeah, I mean, you know, Stanford doesn't necessarily, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to the Pac-12 either, right? So they may or may not have a league. Although Stanford is one of the schools, and I, you, maybe you guys will agree with this or not. I know we have some Stanford alums that listen to the show. Um, they're one of the few schools that maybe they could go independent. Like, they don't, I don't, think they're in a position that they have to be in a league, but obviously it would help them in terms of scheduling, travel, all the other stuff. But they're also one of the schools that really values Olympic sports and like having like a huge roster of teams as opposed to really folks. I mean, kind of an underrated or underreported story is how much the Stanford men's basketball team has fallen off. It used to be under Mike Montgomery, like a huge national mm -hmm. Powerhouse. I mean, you think about the Lopez twins, et cetera. Like a lot of players have played there and starred there. And it's just like women's basketball is like really kind of carrying the banner in terms of major sports for, for them now. And so it is kind of a moment for them to, I think, assess what their kind of athletic department is and should be and what they want it to be. Stanford recently has recruited Andrew Luck. Um, Davis Mills, NFL players. And this is while Shaw was at the school. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.